everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. And uh, like we did six, seven, eight weeks ago, I'm not sure how long ago now it was, we paused and Drew took an entire episode to interview me to get a little bit of my backstory for some context for this podcast, fill in some of the gaps. And we're going to do the same today. And I'm going to ask Drew a series of questions, get to know him. Uh, But again, all within the context of this podcast, trying to keep it specific to our content and the vision for why it started, which we'll actually talk about in this interview. So, hey, right off the bat, Drew, why don't you give us some context for your background? So I I know you, actually, before we go all the way back, I got to know you my freshman year in college when we were freshmen at Baylor together back in 2001. Within the first couple of years, a nickname emerged, uh, the nickname Wildcat. Give, <laughs> give us, and there are just a handful of people who will still refer to you by that name. It's not as common today, but, but why Wildcat? What, what was behind that? Got a lot to say about this. First, the origin of it's almost like a pseudo nickname because there is like this very dedicated group of people that are very small in number that have committed to calling me that. But there's like one in a hundred that actually know me who use that nickname. So shout out to those few of you who still persist. Um, the, the nickname started the guy who was discipling me at the time, the college pastor at our church here in Waco at Antioch named Robert Herber misread a t-shirt I was wearing. It was my dorm football shirt and it was the Mudcats, and he somehow read it too quickly and said, Wildcat, that's a great nickname for you, and started calling me that. And so the people that were around in that narrow window. Now, I have a theory about nicknames, though, Mick, and I don't know if this has been your experience. People who have one-syllable names, it's harder to get a nickname to stick. So Mick, Drew, because you, you tend to gravitate towards what's the easiest to say, and so people have tried to give me nicknames forever, and none of them have ever stuck. I don't know if that's been your experience. Yeah, I, the only nickname I've ever had was in high school, and I actually can't repeat it in a podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> we're going to leave that in the you getting arrested at Claire's category. Yeah, that's right. So this is cutting edge ideological material here, theories of nicknames. There you go. Awesome. So uh, go back even further. Give us some uh, you know, background. I know you grew up in Kansas City and even some of your church background. You talk a lot about being brought up in the charismatic world. So just what was that like for you? So I, I distinctly remember, I guess it was like when I moved off to college, I had this moment, and I don't know if you, anybody else has ever had this epiphany where you realize that you're weird, where you kind of grow up and live life and think that you're normal, and then you have this like realization that like, oh man, I'm not normal. And you know that was definitely the case for me growing up in pretty out there charismatic scene. A few different elements in my past. Yeah, just I realize as I get older, like, oh, that's unique and interesting. One... I grew up in a pretty vibrant, charismatic renewal movement. Um, some of you may be familiar with Mike Bickle, and the, the church went through a lot of names. So Kansas City Fellowship, Metro Vineyard, Metro Christian, and then today is the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. So my dad worked at that church for 15 years, and I grew up kind of at the heyday. If you're familiar with them, you might be familiar with some of their prophetic history, but it was a church movement that was associated with prophecy and the power of God. And there was an outpouring of the spirit in the eighties. And a lot of it was actually amongst my friends. It was among, you know, so in the first grade, there was a, this move of the spirit. And I went to the church school 
So I still remember it. Like we would have a class and, uh, you know, be like math class. And there'd be all these kids that were out in the spirit at the front of the classroom. And I had friends that had like open visions of heaven or like physically saw angels and demons. I mean, crazy stuff, you know, and that was normal to me. I mean, looking back and I was like, I don't know that that many people had that experience in the first grade. Um, but that's just what our world was. And God was moving, you know, and it's, of course, whenever you hear those stories, it's not that every single thing was legit, but there definitely was legit. And the reason my family got there is we actually had a, I think we were the first documented miracle as part of that movement. My sister was in the womb. I was only a year and a half old. There was, I forget the, I'd have to get, get my dad to get on here sometime and tell us the full story. But there, something with her kidneys, I believe, where medically she had almost no chance of survival and you know, and even if she had survived, it was like the long-term damage would be so great, you know. And so the doctors really had no hope. Uh, my parents went to uh, this guy, Mike, who they'd serve on staff at this church with, a Presbyterian church. They knew him. They heard that he was spirit-filled and believed in miracles. So they went to him and they're in this prayer meeting and they describe it for about 25 minutes. These prophetic people just read their mail, told them things about themselves, stuff God had spoken that they never told anybody before. And they had this really dynamic encounter with God. And then at the end, they didn't, they barely even prayed, but they just said, your daughter's going to be well. So my mom describes the, the whole scenario. She was just filled with faith, uh, instantly filled with faith. And, you know, this is, there's a lot of stuff we know now about the power of God and the prophetic. Another side of my backstory we can get to in a second is my family. My grandpa worked with the Kansas City Chiefs football organization for 50 years. My dad was with the team at the time. And so... They had this charismatic experience, and they went back and told everybody with the Chiefs. So Mike Bickle's planting this new church in Kansas City. He's this, like, new charismatic guy. And all of a sudden, my dad's going around telling everybody before my sister was healed what God had done and how he was going to heal her. You know, so wow. I, I've heard Mike try to tell the story, like, wait, hold on. You know, like, <laughs> let's wait till after the miracle to share the testimony. Um, but, I mean, sure enough, she was, uh, you know, the, when she was born, the, do- the room in the hospital was filled with specialists. They still have the medical records, and my sister was born completely healthy. And the first words out of the doctor's mouth to my mom was, you have your miracle. So, you know, that's a pretty dynamic story that shaped our family. So, you know, you hear these renewal movements, and it doesn't mean there wasn't wackiness or stuff that maybe wasn't the Lord, but the we have walking miracles that are part of that as well. And so that, from my earliest memories, I never doubted that God was moving, nor the authenticity of what we see I certainly saw challenges with the way that God moves. And I think growing up in a movement like that gives you a perspective that's different even from the people who join a movement like that. When you're a kid, you don't really have the choice to be there or not. And you see a different side of it. And and I think that, yeah, just there's good, there's really beautiful, rich things. And as I get older, I'm so grateful for my heritage. But then there's also challenging things that I think have maybe shaped some of my, my view around the things of the spirit. That's great. So you talk about having this moment of realization that I think every person should have, by the way, of, wait a minute, I'm, I'm kind of strange. I'm, I'm weird. Were you like among those having, having these open visions in this kind of charismatic world? Well, that, that's the problem, Mick. You see, I, I was impressionable as a first grader. So I, I have this distinct memory of being in a class where all these kids are out in the spirit, having these encounters with God, and I just didn't know what to do. So I went and laid down next to them and looking back on it, I realized I fake fell out in the spirit as a first grader. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. I've tried not to make that a pattern. And also, like, they, it was a legit move of God. I, you know, for anybody questioning, is like this real or not? They, they gave the choice to a bunch of first graders. They could go to a prayer meeting or recess. And no joke, more than half the class chose prayer meeting. 
Like, can you imagine? I just like thinking about going to a group of first graders that's and giving inc- them that choice. Insane. For those listening, I will let you know that I faithfully chose recess. Uh, God gave me this skill with dodgeball that I wanted to cultivate. So I, I don't think I ever chose the prayer meeting. So I wouldn't say that I was like the guy in all the prayer times. I wasn't opposed to it, but I also wasn't the one having the visions or the encounters with God. So that was a church school. It was a school associated. It was a, a church school. Yeah. And then in high school, I know this is a leading question. You had some hobbies that you were a part of. Yeah, I had some really awkward phases. Um, there's a range of photographs from basically, really, it should have covered all of high school, but especially my junior high and uh, freshman years of high school, where I it ended up with me uh, trying to get involved with the underground rave scene. And I, I never did drugs, all right? <laughs> Lay off. I never did drugs, but uh, I, I did end up in a lot of really wild places. And, uh, you know, and then I know like that's still a thing, but back in the late 90s, it was it wasn't quite I think there was like an earlier generation of that scene that would would rent out warehouses and then they'd have these warehouse parties that were like completely underground. We weren't quite that like, but it would still, it'd be like, you would find out there'd be like a, a flyer and then you would call a phone number at the last minute and it would have like a pre-recorded message of where it was going to be and it'd be these all night dance parties. Unbelievable. <laughs> it, like the sketchiness level was really high and I just couldn't understand why my parents weren't supportive of me being a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Um, I did have a time, we'll, we'll do confession, where there was this rave and I lived in Kansas City and there was this rave in Omaha, Nebraska and I think I was a junior in high school and I was so wanted to go to it so you know how like every friend group, you have the parents that let you get away with more than all the other parents. So we had this one friend whose parents were somehow cool with us going, but none of nobody else's parents were cool because we all asked. So then what we decided to do was we all told our parents we were going over to his house. And then he told his parents that we all had permission to go to this rave. So we, it was like the perfect crime. So we piled into his car and drove to Omaha and we crossed the Nebraska border and as we were driving, all of a sudden the car started making funny noises. And then we like kept driving. And then the car started like shaking violently, sounded like a jackhammer. So we eventually turned the car around and we're headed back to Kansas City, like realizing there's a serious problem. And then the engine blew up. It threw a rod. So it's like 11 p.m. at night. We're on the side of the highway somewhere in Nebraska. <laughs> and, uh, so we call our friend's dad, like thinking that we can still somehow salvage this. You know, and like an hour later, he shows up to rescue us. And I just, I still remember the look on his face, you know, and, and all he said was, I called your parents to tell you that, tell them that you were okay. Oh, <laughs> he didn't even great. have to say it. Like that was the <laughs> longest night. I just remember getting, getting back to his house being like, oh my gosh, I'm in so much trouble. So yeah, I, you know, I somehow, somehow I managed to like be in that world and not do anything too crazy, but not what I want for my children. But you actually DJed, right? Yeah, I, I did DJ. I didn't really DJ. I, I did like a couple raves, but I wasn't. I, I, was like I just love, I love the juxtaposition of Drew, the high school rave DJ, and now the astute theologian doing the Ideology Podcast. And I also, I, I did like my high school. I, I'm the oldest kid, which oldest kids a lot of times like don't know how to like act cool because you don't have anybody to like show you. But I really tried to be a part of all the countercultural scenes that that world offered. I was just never, like the group I ran in was not like the preppy normal people. It was the weird people. So then when I got to Baylor, I, like my act of rebellion of not doing what I used to do was trying to be as normal as I could. So I was like 
for those who knew me in college, they had a hard time wondering about like the rave Drew, mainly because I, I just decided to make a clean break and be as normal as I could. And that, that was like my angsty act of rebellion of a clean break with my past. I'm just going to be normal. So I'm bringing Normcore back. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So one last piece before we jump to the more modern era for Drew Stedman, the uh, talk about the Chiefs connection there. Your your family wasn't just employed by the Chiefs. I mean, there's some deep connections there, obviously, that formed a big part of your upbringing. So my grandpa, um, he spent 50 years at the team, and he had a bunch of different roles, but it was the president and the GM for a lot of it of the team, and a little bit of football history. The Kansas City Chiefs were originally the Dallas Texans, part of the American Football League, which was meant to be, it was a rival founded by this guy, Lamar Hunt, who lived in Dallas. It was a rival towards the National Football League. And it's back in like 50s, 60s. And so my grandpa was working for Lamar and in Dallas is where he started. He was with Hunt Oil. It's like a big Texas oil company. And then this new football league had formed. And so he got hired by Lamar to come be a part of it. And so he ended up I think he he did one job and he ended up for, you know six months into it um, taking over the Dallas Texans on the business side. So the Dallas Texans are like doing pretty well. So the NFL, it's kind of like this spiteful act, decided to open up a franchise in the city of Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys. And so the Cowboys move in and and you know still today there's only one football team in Dallas in the Metroplex. But back then in the '60s, like there was no way that you could support two two professional teams. So the Texans actually had the bigger ticket sales, but they just, there was, it was, you know, the, the NFL was going to play the long game. It just, they were willing to take a loss on it. So it became obvious that the AFL had to move. So they moved up to Kansas City. Um, and the Hunts are such a Dallas family, they stayed put. So my grandpa was the guy that moved the team up. So actually, the reason I grew up in Kansas City is entirely because of the Dallas Cowboys. So they are my arch nemesis. <laughs> but yeah, that was, so we grew up and I, uh, my grandpa was at the team. He had different jobs and, you know, in the, the mid 80s, the NFL changed a little bit to where you really needed the guys at the GM typically were coaches and he always was on the business side. So he transitioned then and last, most of my growing up was in more of an, an oversight role with business. But so he was with the team. And then my, my dad actually, when I was my first five years or seven years of life, or actually part of that time, at least he was the VP of business for the chiefs. I did, Yeah, I grew up. I mean, I have, I have a photo of me being in Arrowhead stadium when I was two weeks old I've spent the night in the stadium before. I know that place pretty well, and a lot of my life um, revolved around around the Chiefs. So I had this kind of like weird charismatic circle, and then this professional football circle that were part of my childhood. And uh, I told you I was weird, right? Like, I don't know that people believed me yet. <laughs> and then I had my rave, my rave days. What a mashup! I have a very eclectic eclectic background. It's incredible. And then the send coming all the way full circle. Yeah. So shout out to Andy Bird and the send. And why I'm kind of putting that on, um, but yeah, it's it's wild. Uh, you guys can get online and look at that. But it's this event in Arrowhead. It's this mobilization event for for mission. At Antioch, we're really supportive and partnering with them. And it's the kind of thing where we'd partner with them anyway. And in my role with U.S. Church Planting, my day job, um, that's something that I would be a part of. And so it's wild because he's sharing this prophetic story about the send, and I, I wasn't even clued in. I'm just sitting there listening to him talk, and then it dawned on me. I was like, oh my gosh, like my grandpa was the guy that led the initiative to get the stadium built. And then, you know, we had all these prophetic words from my church actually about that stadium when I was a child. And then here we are now as an adult, I'm working with a different church, but we're supporting this event at Arrowhead Stadium. So it was this weird convergent moment of all these different aspects of my life, past, present, and future coming together. It was kind of eerie. And I I still don't know what it all means, um, but one of those crazy, just God things you don't know what to do with. Awesome. So 
that maybe rounds out the early years for Drew Stedman. So fast forward now to the more modern era. How did you get connected to obviously moving to Waco, coming to Baylor, connected to Antioch? But talk about those early years that that kind of pointed you toward what you're now what you're now giving your life for. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like with my background, I you know had all these encounters with God, and I never I've never doubted if that was real, and I've always lived with this awareness of God's nearness and hearing His voice, and I've seen God move so powerfully my formative years that that that's a, a part of me that's just been marked and I'm so grateful for that and in having such godly mentors I'm so thankful for Mike Bickle and obviously my parents and I can name several others uh, Michael and Terry Sullivan or the McClungs Floyd and Sally McClung or Sam Storms you know just people that were a part of that circle that I just look up to still to this day and so many of them I, I read their stuff and it's just so influential to me and thankful to count them as part of my spiritual heritage However, I will say that when I graduated high school, I wasn't in a good place. And my story, I was not the wild guy like doing the drugs or doing something, you know, totally off the wall. But I was somebody who knew the things of God, but was wanting the things of the world. And I was really learning how to pursue both of them simultaneously. And, And I was not living the life of a disciple is the only way I know to say it. And what was scary in my case is I had a lot of great spiritual knowledge. And so, you know, I know a lot of people where they like went off to college and they never encountered God before and they encountered God for the first time. Well, I had encountered God before, but I was choosing to live for the world. And that's, a, I think, a scarier place to be in in retrospect. And I thought I knew it because I had all this knowledge about God. And I'd been on a ton of mission trips. I'd been overseas. I could tell you about prophecy. I could tell you about church strategy and disciple making. Like I, I had a lot of knowledge that I still use today. Um, but it wasn't marked by surrender, and I didn't know it. So, you know, I, I was like a textbook example of the guy that was going to, you know, somehow get in ministry and just have this crazy collapse. And I didn't, I wasn't necessarily wanting to do ministry. But I, I moved to Waco, moved to college, and had the wherewithal to get connected to a church, and I already knew about Antioch. So I was here, and I got discipled, got pulled into this life group by a guy named Robert Herber, and he really invested in me. But for about six months, I was like the flakiest college freshman who— in retrospect, I'm like, I can't believe that anybody would choose to pursue me or invest in me. Like, I just showed no signs of hunger <laughs> spiritually. So even now, I teach on discipleship is one of the things I teach on a lot. And I'm always careful because I'm like, I, I don't know that I would tell somebody to invest in a guy like me. Um, but he did. And he was faithful to pursue me. And I'm so eternally grateful for that. So I ended up on a mission trip. God just rocked my world while I was there where I, I saw the kingdom lived out for a week. And um, it was really powerful, but I'm, I'm always careful when I tell my testimony that the mission trip didn't change my life. I'd, I'd had other mission trips. It was a catalyst, but what changed my life and the difference this time was I had community and I had discipleship and I had a group of peers and, and older brothers. I'd had fathers and mothers, but I don't know that I had that many older brothers. And I had people like that around me and then friends who run, wanted to run really hard after God. And you, I mean, you were part of those days. We weren't in the same group, but uh, there was just this community of people that were just going for it with God. And so I had this encounter and I had this background, but then I had that community. And so I, there was a buddy of mine. I remember after that trip, I was like, I'm a mess. I need help. So we started doing nightly accountability. And it wasn't something where Robert didn't like make us do it. It was my my decision. It's like, I just, I need this. And that's what it took for me was the consistency. And so, you know, I look back, the trip didn't change my life. It was 20 something years now of community changed my life. And, and so that's where a lot of that passion came in for the church and for disciple making, just recognizing an event's not going to do it. And even an encounter with God's not going to do it, no matter how dramatic, but God's called us to community 
And if we really want to live the life of a disciple, we need each other to do it. So that, that's been super formative for me. And it's probably been, if I had to pick one thing that's guided, guided me, it's, you know, so, so often in life, it's how God met you is then your passion for, for ministry um, is tied to that. And that's certainly the case for me. That's great. So this podcast, I know, has been near and dear to your heart. When you, you approached me about this, I don't know, well, gosh, what was that, about a year and a half ago now or something I'd been thinking about too, but you seem to have a real impetus behind this and, and a real sense that, man, this is God's invitation to do this. So talk to us a little bit about the run-up to doing ideology. Back somewhere in like 2018, 17, somewhere back then, I started doing this thing where I felt like God had told me to write. And I would just do it on Sabbath days. I, I would take time and um, just some downtime. I would take this stuff that was in my heart and I'd write it out. And it wasn't really intended for anybody to see. And actually most of that I never published anywhere. Um, but what was happening is that there was stuff that I was seeing that wasn't sitting right with me. So I'd hear people saying stuff. I'd read stuff online. And it was something was off. Like I, I was just worried. And I, I didn't have the language for it. So in, I didn't know that I was doing this at the time, but what I was doing is I was working it out in my own soul a little bit because it was, it was things that were like wrestling for me internally, not just I was worried that other people were saying. And so as I would sit and write, um, what started to crystallize for me was this idea about there being competing belief systems in our culture. And I actually hadn't read the literature on it. And, and since that time, I realized there's a lot of good stuff that's been written that's really helped me to refine these thoughts. But the crux of it was this idea that there is a competing belief system in our society. These days, I, I refer to secularism. At first, I talked a lot about humanism, and I still do. I think they're tied together, but I probably use secularism as a bit more of an umbrella term. Humanism fits under it. And, but I, I tried to put language to it that helped just internally for me make sense of it. So what happened is I, I started to get my, my concern at first was pastoral. As I'm discipling people and involved in the church, I'm seeing these powerful ideas and culture have an influence on people. And I feel in my spirit something negative, but I don't have the language to describe it or to counteract it. So I'm, I'm working this stuff out on a personal level. And then at the church, we did this sermon series. It was in 2 Corinthians. Uh, and, and I remember, like, you know, we had a little bit of flexibility always on which messages we do. But um, for this one, I, I got assigned to this passage, and it's Paul talking about demolishing strongholds. And if you exegete that passage, it's really referring to arguments in the mind. It's not, in that instance, it's actually not talking about like a demonic principality. I mean, maybe it is, but it's really talking about ideas and belief systems and worldviews that are opposed to the gospel. So it just felt like this convergence moment where the stuff that I've been sorting through about humanism and cultural Christianity, and, and a lot of what I was sorting out was, I, I humanism's not right, but I also kind of this cultural Christianity that America's lived with for so long is not right. And what I was dawning on me is people are, are wanting to leave behind cultural Christianity for a lot of really good reasons, but they're stepping right into this humanistic worldview that's also not the kingdom of God. And so there's like this seesaw. We're going from one to the other. And then, you know, people are seeing this humanism as a bad thing, and they're trying to go back to cultural Christianity. And, and so what's stirring in my spirit is, no, none of that's right. Like what we have to do is figure out what does it mean to live as a disciple and the way of the kingdom, which is neither of those two things. So that's all getting sorted out in me. And I remember it was like the day before I preached, I felt like I'd written some stuff on discipleship before. And I felt like, like, man, I want to write a book on this. It felt like impossible because, you know, books are expensive. And I was like, nobody's going to ask me to do that. So anyway, I preached this sermon, felt good about it. And as I preach, I go home and a guy who uh, at the time was running publishing company, Clear Day, that we use for Antioch, hexed me. And he said, hey, I, I think God might have given you a book. I'd like to talk to you about it. We have lunch the next day. 
and it, it to me it felt like a confirmation like this is more than just a one-off message but something i'm supposed to to steward so that started me on this journey i wrote this book in a couple of different in a couple months um it just came together and it was a lot of the pre-work i had done but it, it really felt like it flowed i started doing a lot of research mick you actually helped me with that uh, first round of edits and we released it later so that was i think in 2018 is when we might have gotten published right at the beginning of 19 but it was, it was all these thoughts and so what's funny is the book it did fine but it didn't sell like a ton you know i think it was so good for me because it helped me to really clarify a lot of this and then since writing like the, <laughs> you've written too so you get this mick whenever you write it's always frustrating because you know you keep reading and you keep researching like I, I there's so much more i would put in a book like this and nuance and added things but i still feel really good about what what was written um, but i think the way that god used it wasn't so much like i had you know sometimes you like god leads you to something and you, you assume what's going to happen, like this thing's really going to take off. The book didn't really take off, but God used that to help me step into something. And so that set me on this journey of going back to school, reading, studying, diving into theology. And as I did all of that, I realized like this is something I, I'm really passionate about because I'm passionate about the church and this is stuff that's influencing the church. And so I just felt like God was leading me. This is a place to serve, to help help the church create language to to identify and stand and, and, and trying to do it in a non-antagonistic way. Like I'm not trying to bash the world as much as clarify what's the responsibility of the church. And so it was this emerging passion through that whole experience that started to come out for me. And it, it was something that I, seven years ago, I never would have thought that that was something that God would lead me into. Um, but now it's something that's deeply, deeply burned in my heart. And I think, you know, over the last couple of years, I've, I've started to turn the corner of not just analyzing where we're at culturally, but trying to help paint a vision for where we need to go. And obviously there's a lot of different gift mix and personalities that, that do that. But I think taking this teaching side and theological side of how does that contribute to a positive vision for the church? Yes, yeah, that's, that's really, it's so encouraging. Cause I, th- I think one of the things I appreciate most about you, Drew, and that I've personally gleaned from doing this podcast together is as Steph and I shut the church down in Lawrence, for four and a half years ago, almost, gosh, five years ago, over five years ago, good grief, having revelations as I'm talking, and and gone through our own process of having, you know, mixed emotions and confusion and, and the process, some of the process I've shared about on this podcast in the past, and, and then getting to partner with you and the way that you've wrestled from a different angle and have been able to, and I was thinking about this just throughout the COVID era, as the church has taken a lot of heat uh, across the, you know, across the nation, uh, and even here locally, and and watching how you have been able to both think critically and and develop your own convictions and hold your own set of you know, understandings of church expression and so on, and yet honor and contend for the church uh, from a deep place to me is a testimony. It, it's indicative of how much you've had to flesh this out on your own, or not on your own. Obviously, there's a component that's on your own, but in the context of community, in the context of your studies, and just so appreciate the ability to hold that in tension. And so, yeah, so bring us up to, again, all that's in the backdrop there. And, and now the the podcast you talked about, there was kind of a seed of thought that the book was part of that journey. Uh, and more to the point, uh, this podcast, what was in your heart for, for this? Yeah, thanks for the encouragement, first of all. And I, I hope and pray that's uh, that is definitely what I aspire to be. It, yeah, it's always a road to get there, but definitely, definitely my heart. Uh, so, you know, I had this book and I think what I was still feeling this frustration because I'm, it was like watching a slow moving car wreck, you know, <laughs> we're just seeing, uh, I think what I, what was frustrating me was seeing people getting duped by the arguments of the world 
And of course, there's a lot of other, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's on an emotional level and on a social level. But I just was like, man, it's, there's not life in the world. The arguments aren't that good in the first place. And, you know, just that was my feeling. And just felt like there's something else that needs to be interjected. And I, and I think, you know, if I was going to go a little deeper, we're uncritically adopting the belief system of the world in maybe not in the overt areas that are obvious to a believer like sexuality or something else, but in all these other areas we are. And, and it's wreaking havoc, you know, I, I felt like in, in our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And it feels, you know, times of crisis, especially COVID just put fuel on this fire, really accelerated all this. So I was feeling all this far be, way before COVID, but then COVID was like the crazy accelerator that, that just was stirring something. But it's like, you know, I spent all this time writing this book and I'm like, it's not really getting into the hands of people that I feel like need it. And so I, I thought about a podcast and, you know, I'll just go full disclosure. I'm not a podcast guy. I don't really listen to podcasts very much. So I, I'm much more of a reader is my preference. And so, you know, I wrote a book because I'm a reader and I want other people to be readers. Um, no shame if you're not a reader. That's why I'm doing this podcast. But I, <laughs> Again, I'm weird. All right. Uh, but I remember a, a buddy of mine who was one of my college roommates, um, Kendall Laughlin, out of the blue, he's really prophetic. And he had, I, I can't remember if it was a dream or something he just felt from the Lord. But he didn't know I was thinking about this. And he texted me and he said, hey, I feel like just something from God was uh, potentially you doing a podcast. And I think his was ideas and issues was the word he gave. And we ended up landing with ideology. But he, he kind of prophesied this like almost identical to what we ended up doing. You know what I think is cool about the prophetic is I was already thinking that, sensing that. But I have this thing inside of me. I don't want to just do stuff because it's a good idea because I have ideas all the time. I, it's like, how do what's God actually leading versus what's me just doing because it's cool and, you know, whatever. So that really helped me to be like, okay, I feel like this isn't just my good idea, but God actually might be leading this. And um, so then we talk, Mick, and you were thinking similar thoughts. And, you know, we, we have different angles as far as like types of interests that we have, but it's a lot of the same ideas. And I think both of us spend a lot of time on an individual level talking to people about this kind of stuff. And so there was some agreement there about, hey, this is probably something to do. And then it was like that month is when COVID happened. And, you know, so then it was like six months of, I think that was March, maybe 2020 or February 2020. And we had talked, we had this plan, and then it was like the whole world went crazy. And so we put that on the back burner just because we're so much other stuff we needed to do in pastoral ministry. Um, But then watching things unfold, it just added to the urgency that this is a need. And so that's that's how we started. And and it was interesting because it was like, I felt like I'd done the book, you know, all these other things. And none of it really took off. And this is and a constant struggle for me was the stuff we talk about on this podcast. It's not great stuff, sermon material for Sunday mornings. Like that's, I don't think the church pulpit is the general place to talk about this kind of thing every now and then. But, you know, if, if you're sitting there coming to church and you just had this big argument with your spouse and you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay your bills, you know, which is real life. I think the church, the role of preaching is a little different, but they're still important to have these conversations. And I've always struggled of where do we have these conversations? Is it a training school? Is it a class? Is it a book? Is it just trying to crack the code? Because I think this stuff's important, but I couldn't figure out a way to inject it in the life of the body. And, you know, and then the problem is like, if you do a class, the people who show up to a class about worldview are the people who already think about it, but they're not the people that I'm worried about thinking about it, you know? So how do we, how do we do that? And, um, and it was, it was wild because we do the podcast and it, I feel like I tried all this stuff and none of it worked. But as soon as we did the podcast and kind of based on the prophetic word, it took off like infinitely more than anything else we tried with this. So that just felt to me like, okay, I think 
you know, I think there's a place for this. And yeah, and, I, and I've loved doing it since. Yeah, that's great, Drew. And I, I think both of us have been surprised by the listenership and the response that we get consistently. And, and we've touched on some very sensitive topics on this podcast and and have had just some great conversations and questions that have been raised, uh, but really overwhelmingly positive response. I think it's touched a nerve that in a good way that people have been grappling with a lot of these ideas and, and have been grateful. So on behalf of our listeners and for myself, thank you for following that leadership, that impetus from the Lord to start this podcast. And and to that end, what have you learned about God's leadership through this? I mean, that's it's interesting. Obviously, this is a very, I think there's a very intellectual side of this podcast, and it's amazing to learn that it was inspired by, led by the Lord, you know, confirmed through a prophetic word, just the blend there of the the mind, the spirit. So talk to us a little bit about maybe to round out this episode about God's leadership and what you've learned there. Yeah, I think I, this is a struggle for me constantly. So I'll, I'll, I'll share from the place of weakness, not from the place of I've got it figured out. But I just want to be led by the Lord. And I think we talk a lot about the ideologies of this world. And so much of it is about this individual, individualistic success. And you got to be the best and the brightest. And we've got to have these like master plans to make stuff work. And I'm a planned guy. I mean, you know, probably pick that up if you listen to this. You know, I like having a plan and a strategy. And all that kind of stuff. But I just feel this deep conviction in my spirit and this check. And I, I grieve where I don't measure up to this of, I don't want to do my own thing. Like, I think there's this element of we've got to be led by the spirit and not make it about ourselves. And as I look back on my life in God, so much of it was God leading me to say yes to things and focusing on what's going to serve. And, and, and I don't say that from like, I did it all awesome. I mean, I think a lot of times like, I didn't want to do it. I did it kicking and screaming, but it was just clearly the Lord. Uh, but looking back now, I see what a gift it was. Because I, I think there's this temptation, you know, as I look at my own past, you know, in our 20s, like I got to figure out what my gift and calling is. And this is, you know, my spiritual gift assessment, my Enneagram and my all of it. And it has to line up perfectly with my calling. And I just know for me, that's not at all how God led me. And the stuff that I thought, if you had gone back and asked me at age 23, what my contribution was going to be, it's totally different than that's how I would have thought it'd be totally different. And then, you know, same thing at 30, it's totally different than it is today. And I'm assuming when I'm 45, it'll look different than it is now. You know, it's just, there, there's this thing where we so, so focus on how individually God is going to use us as though that becomes our identity. And I just feel this deep conviction because I feel that pull so deeply, you know, and I think I want to be significant. I want to like, you know, have that. And I, I'm grateful for the gift God's given me and I'm thankful for that. But I also, I had this really wise counsel that was given to me of don't box yourself in around your gifting and just be open to how God wants to use you. And, and so I'm so glad I did that. Like, you know, I'm so glad I, I received that counsel of said yes to stuff. And, you know, I mean, the whole way I never would have thought of myself as a writer, but we had, I remember it was, we had this, this life group leader manual that had gotten so clunky because people kept adding stuff to it that I, my job was to edit it. And as I edited it, I was like, there's no way to edit this. So I was like, why don't I just rewrite this? And then I, I realized like people don't want to read manuals. So that, but they might read a book. So I wrote it as a book. And then as I was writing it as a book, it turned out to be something that I enjoyed doing. I was like, I think I'm pretty decent at this. And that, you know, so it was always like, what's the next thing in front? What's the opportunity to serve? And as you do that, what starts happening is you start identifying gifts that God's put on you. And again, I don't say that to say that I aced that test. I think there's a lot of ways I was selfish or I wasn't focused, but I, I hope in my heart that I've tried to keep that in front. So I think as I look at this journey, and this would be you know, what am I saying to myself so that I don't lose sight of it? What would I encourage all of us with is 
let's not so focus on our individual dream and passion. I, I think we spend too much time there. I don't know that it needs to be about that. And I actually had this experience, you know, where I was, I've always left open-ended, what's my calling? People ask me, like, what's your calling? And my answer is, I don't know. But it was about a year ago, I felt like God one day said, hey, I'm going to give you your calling. And I was like, great, what is it? And I feel like the Lord said, your calling is to the church, period. And, and it, it hit me. It just felt so out of the blue. But I was like, you know what? I think that's, maybe we're thinking about calling wrong because we focus on our gifting. And I think calling is more about who we're called to than how we're called to use our gift. I don't think calling is meant to be individualistic. I think calling is meant to be to a people and, and to um, a purpose that God has. And then how we fit you know, and how we exercise our gifts. And so ironically, that gives me a greater passion to hone in my giftings, but it's not for the sake of my giftings. It's for the sake of the church. So I'll I'll leave it at that. And again, not to say any of that as though I've got all this figured out as much as it's what's in my heart that I aspire to. And so that's what's been fun about this is it's not something I would have thought, but the more I do it, the more I love it. And I don't know, you know, I don't know when I look to the future, um, I'm assuming God will keep leading that direction. And I just hope and pray that I'll I'll have the, the sensitivity and the, the, the heart to be ready when God leads into the next thing, you know, that, that we can keep it about that calling to the church. But I will say, you know, if you're, especially if you're younger, and this is probably applies to anybody, but if you're younger, and especially if you're stuck on calling, maybe reframe the question to say, where's the need? Um, and, and how can I serve? How can I, how can I be a part of supporting others and what God's called them to do? And I, I believe that in, in the economy of God, as you do that, that God will actually release you when you're open-handed into what he's called you to do, but it will be when your attention's on others. Awesome. Love it. Thanks, Drew. Uh, hopefully this um, personalizes some of the content of this podcast for you in this episode today. Appreciate you, Drew, opening up, sharing uh, everything from your rave DJ experiences to the Chiefs to charismatic world to you know everything that's in your heart. We appreciate you. Uh, thanks for listening, as always, and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. Told you I was weird.